Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be picking up at verse 11. As always, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along. And there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. But if there isn't, if you'll raise your hands, the ushers will bring one to you. Does anybody need a Bible? Is everybody good? Everybody's good? Well, the Bible says there's none good. No, not one. So y'all should read Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Second, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting at verse 11. Paul instructing this young pastor, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only Pontitate and King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in an approachable light whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Father, we do lift up this section of your scripture, Lord, as you have given it to us for this day. We just pray, Father, that you would meet us in such a way, Lord, that we can truly see within ourselves this work that you are doing. And so, Father, I just pray that you will bless our time in your word. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So when you look in the mirror, what do you see? We all have perceptions of ourself. I have a way that I perceive myself, which could be based upon fantasy, or it could be based upon reality. I like to think that I know and understand how others perceive me as well, but I don't know if that's always true. But when you look in the mirror, do you look through the facial to see the spiritual? I mean, the, really, the, the, the real person, the true person who is staring back at you, looking past the facade and, and seeing the personality of that person. Well, if you do, spiritually speaking, you should see two things, at least one of two things, really. Either vice or virtue. In your life, you're well aware of the vice. And virtue, I pray that virtue is becoming greater in your life than vice. Vice that would be all of the bad habits that corrupt good morals. That would be the things that are contrary to God and the things that used to rule and reign in your life, or at least I pray they used to rule and reign in your life. And some of them are still there and we're working on them, but they should be overshadowed by virtue. Virtue would be a personality that is being developed into godliness. Because as God has brought us into His kingdom, as He has saved us, as He has changed us and separated us, he, continue, he desires for that continued growing process. And again, it's where the church so can miss out. We can so gather together in buildings and in groups and whatnot and, and hear some motivational speech or whatever it might be or, or, or hear some good ideas for other people. But these things we need to cling to and we need to grow in. It's these things that have been given to us for the purpose of righteousness and holiness, that we would be well-pleasing to our God. It's not teaching for the pastorate. 
This is stuff for everyday life. This is what God, as we get into God's Word, this is God's desire for your life. Now this morning in children's ministry, I did a devotion for the teachers, and they're talking about the infallibility of God's Word and how we are not to add to it or subtract from it. I did a devotion from 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says in verse 12, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Then in verse 13, But, but there's this going to be this dynamic throughout the church age. Men and impostors will go worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. People who have given themselves over to the deception of the devil. It's not that they're the devil themselves, but it says these deceivers are also being deceived. They believe that they are speaking the truth. But then in verse 14, but you, you must continue in the things which you have learned and assured of, knowing whom you have learned them. What are the things that you learned? At least the original things that you learned was the gospel. And what happens is you receive the gospel. It became real and it flourished within your life to the point of salvation. And as it did, as God was faithful in that beginning work, He who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. He's going to continue that growing process. In verse 15, And from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise uh, for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so we're rooted and grounded in the Word of God. Why? Because, well, we see ourselves for who we truly are. We'll recognize the vice. There's no doubt about that. But I pray that we are growing in that which is virtuous in the sight of God. And so it's here that the spiritual struggle exists. So many ways that the Christian life is described as in the Bible. Now, I'm a person who loves competition. I, I love competition sometimes to a fault. I, I golf with some of the guys in the church on Monday mornings and we go out there and I don't want to beat them. I want to destroy them. <laughs> I want them to be ashamed that they ever showed up that morning. No, it's actually the beauty of golf because you don't really compete against one another. You compete against the golf course. Unfortunately, the golf course usually wins. But when it comes to competition... We can also easily be like that. I mean, look how these descriptive terms are used in the world of sports. Matter of fact, we just finished with the super struggle between the Broncos and the Panthers. And every, who's going to win? And people are betting their whole lives on these things and their well-being on these things and their happiness and contentment on these things. This big struggle, this big dynamic battle that existed. College basketball, well, the struggle is called March Madness where it's win or go home. Look at our sports technology, I'm sorry, terminology that we use. And when it's one team against another or a person against a person, you want to deliver the death blow. You want to knock him down, knock him out. You want to beat him up. And so we have these very violent terms for this great struggle that exists in these various areas of competition. And just when you think it might be over, what happens? It's what my wife dreads. When's that game going to be over in five minutes? Uh-oh, dear, it's sudden death. Somebody's going to die suddenly here. And then, look what we do to the ball, whatever the sport may be. You hit it, kick it, shoot it, spike it, knock the cover off it, hammer it, or you kill it. And so, looking at sports, it's kind of violent. It's a major struggle. 
I've heard Star Wars billed as the ultimate battle between good and evil. Well, in the Christian life, the ultimate battle has already been fought. It's already been won. Matter of fact, we've entered in on the winning side. Now, there's still little, little, little wars to be fought, but ultimately that which, that, that, that which has grasped the hearts and souls of humanity, we have been freed from sin, and the devil has been defeated, but we need to continue to still fight the good fight. So, here we are in our last study. Well, actually, I wrote that before I realized this isn't going to be our last study, but our second to the last study in 1 Timothy, an epistle that Paul told us that he wrote it because of, well, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church or the gathering together of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. So the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle, He's given us five distinctives that we've been looking at pretty much every Sunday and building studies around. Five distinctives concerning the conduct of the church. And we've looked at the church and its message, the church and its minister, the church and its ministry to the people within that church, and the church with its ministry or and its ministry as it reaches outside of the walls. So today and next week, it's going to be some closing comments of concern from Timothy's pastor. From Timothy's pastor, as he's now focusing upon the, this young man, this young man that he had such a key part on, this young man that right when Paul rejected John Mark because he was unfaithful, well, God brought a timid Timothy into his life. And I would imagine before that, see, Paul and Barnabas went out on their first missionary journey and John Mark went with them, and John Mark bailed on them in the middle of that because things got kind of hard and a little difficult. Well, Paul just has no, he's got no patience for anybody like that. He comes back, and they make the determination to go again. Barnabas is the son of encouragement, so you know what? We need to get John Mark. We need to teach this young guy. We need to train him. Well, Paul said, I don't want anything to do with him. He bailed on us before. He'll probably bail on us again. And so this contention became so great that they separated their ways. Now, I would imagine when Paul saw Barnabas and John Mark going off, and they did go off to do the work of ministry. It's just not included in the Bible. But nonetheless, he, saw, he had, to, had to be some conviction there. Had to be some conviction because we're not to run over people for the purpose of ministry. We're to get people involved in the work of ministry. We're to grow people in the work of ministry. And so it had to be some conviction, but... When you see in the book of Acts from chapter 15 to chapter 16, as soon as he departed ways with John Mark, that's when he ran into Timothy. And I would imagine he probably looked at Timothy, especially as we get into 2 Timothy, we'll see certain dynamics of this young man that are completely contrary to who Paul is. But God's got a good sense of humor. Just look around you. Look at all of the personalities that are here. I mean, some of you, you probably wouldn't have thought two thoughts about that person if you met him out in the world. But now we are yoked together as brothers and sisters. Now, to be yoked together doesn't involve handcuffs or anything like that. It's to be brought together for the purpose of a work. And so Paul's looking at this young man, Timothy, and he's concerned for him. He's concerned as an elder would be concerned for somebody less mature, as an older pastor to this younger pastor. And so he's going to be giving him instruction instruction it's instruction in his personal life instruction in personal holiness because timothy is the pastor of this church in ephesus 
if his relationship isn't right with the Lord, then there is not going to be anything of any use that is going to spring out from that into a congregation. But I think it goes a little bit deeper. Again, Paul's not so much concerned about that. He is, but I think he's more concerned with the person, with the people. So, the first thing of the last things is to consider the combat that you are involved in. And that's what we'll be looking at in verses 11 through 16. So first, in verse 11, he says, but you. It's kind of an in-your-face kind of a thing. We've talked about those guys who are false teachers. We've talked about the people that need to step up and help support the widows and underprivileged and all of those things. But you. Now it's as if he's got them by the lapels and looking at him in the face. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. So here we have a description and then some direction. And look at the description. This had to really hit him in the face. But you, O man of God. Now, I don't think he was doing that for anything other than to put him in his place and to get his attention. His place? I am to be a man of God. Not because he's the pastor, because he's a Christian. Again, all of his pastor, pastoral ministry will spring forth from his Christian life. But you, O oh man of God, puts him in his place, but gets his attention. Am I really a, a man of God? Am I really doing the things that a, a man of God does? And am, am I really being faithful to that title that Timothy would say that my mentor has given him? See, it, it puts him in the category of who a man of God is, which would be a person of many disabilities, quite a few faults, but an intense desire for the Lord and the things of the Lord. It doesn't put him on an upper spiritual plane. It's a level field. That imperfect people who have come into the kingdom of God, God has placed his power upon them and given them abilities to be able to serve him, not based upon who they are, the person of God, but based upon who God is and his grace and his mercy. And it's not that he's just chosen a few people, he's chosen us all. See, if you're a woman, yes, you can be a man of God as well. Now, the men of God club in the Bible, in the Old Testament anyway, that would include Moses, a man who, a little slow to learn, took him 40 years to learn God's lessons. Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, King David, and again, you, if you so have a desire to be so. Another reason that Paul uses this description is for remembering. See, he wants Paul to, I'm sorry, Timothy to know. Well, Paul, I think, knew, it's which we all, especially those who have maybe a little bit of gray. See, I, I've noticed the other day my hair's starting to thin out a little bit. I'm, get, I'm getting a little older. Not going to be around forever. And I think Paul's starting to realize this. And Paul has to come to the realization, on the day I die, does all this fall apart? I mean, if I'm building people who are dependent upon me, does all this movement, does Christianity, does it all go away? Well, Paul knew that it wouldn't. He understood that this was not built upon him, but built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think he wants his disciples, the people who God has given him to teach and train to realize this as well. Because 
Paul could have described Timothy in other ways, which he has in other parts of the Scripture. He could have described him, but you, my son in the faith, my true son in the faith, or, or but you, my, my co-laborer. But ultimately, what he wants Timothy to know, that Timothy is not of Paul, Timothy is of God. You are not to be of Calvary Chapel. You are not to be of Pastor Mike or of anybody else. You are to be of God. Because ultimately, it's God who teaches you, instructs you, and enables you, and uses you. And it's nobody else. And so, it's the Lord. That's where my focus needs to be in this work of ministry that God has given for all of us to do in our homes first, then in the church, and out in the world. And so, you need to be a person of God and not of any man. Because a man... He could fail. He could fall away. And ultimately, he is going to die. And anything built upon a person is truly going to fall apart. Paul then tells Timothy, if he wants to be a man who is of God, there are certain things, Timothy, that first you need to flee. Flee these things. And so you can look and go, what things? There's no things listed here to flee from. Well, the Bible is constantly instructing us in the things that we are to be proactive in and the things that we are to be reactive in. And so first, as far as what to be reactive in, when those things, those temptations arise, Timothy, you need to flee them. Other, elsewhere, he tells them to flee youthful lust, the things that you are unable to stand against, those temptations that can be too great within your life. What things the things that we have been talking about for the last couple of weeks. Because Timothy could so easily find himself immersed in a love of money. Wow, the offering's gotten a a, a little larger. And as the offering's gotten a little larger, Timothy can think of all the things that he's sacrificed for and how deserving that he should be. And, And well, if he sticks his hand in the till a little bit, then you know what, God's not going to... No, you need to flee those things. If that's a struggle, don't even go there. Don't even go near that. And so he's asking him to consider those things that would cause him to stumble. And the only reason Paul would tell somebody to flee something, if it was a real temptation or stumbling block within their lives. So Timothy, flee. Flee the temptation to teach false doctrine. Now, that's a strong term that you can apply to anything that's just a little off-kilter. Tendence has been down a, a little bit, he could think. And maybe I need to go to some of these ways and programs of the world in order to boost up attendance. The problem with programs to boost attendance, what happens when the program is over? Well, if it works, best case scenario, then they're going to go away after the program is over. It depends who do you want to fill your church with. Do you want to fill your church with people who want to be entertained, people who want to be stimulated, or people who are excited about the Word of God? Stay rooted and grounded in the Word of God, Timothy, and flee any kind of false doctrine. Impure relationships. There's that temptation, Timothy. You're a young man. We never hear about Timothy's wife. I don't know if he even has one. I assume not. And so you need to make sure that purity reigns in your life. And a matter of fact, if there's the temptation, you need to flee it. And then again, I already talked about the love of money. I don't know if these things are things that Timothy struggled with or something that is 
just simply unique to the office of pastor that he's concerned with, but nonetheless, you need to be reactive. When you see these things, you need to react by just getting out of there. Billy Graham put it that you need to be aware, in the work of ministry, you need to be aware of the girls, the gold, and the glory. Because those are temptations that every single year, some old man of God, or at least you thought was, but it turned out not to be because he got immersed in either the girls, the gold, or God's glory. And it has taken him down. And the problem when you take a pastor down, there are people who the Lord uses you to minister to them and bring them to the Lord. But when you fall, they fall as well. And so you have to consider those things. And if there's some fleeing of foot that needs to be done, then you need to flee as fast as you possibly can. So just as we are to be reactive to the things that cause us to stumble, we are to be proactive in the things that we are to embrace as well. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue. Be proactive in your Christian life. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Three things, I'm going to put these in three categories here. Three things that are to fill that vacuum. That vacuum, when you flee away, you've got to fill it with something. If you leave your life open, if you leave it void and empty, there's going to be a vacuum there that will be filled with something. Are you going to fill it with the things of the Spirit? Or are you going to fill it with the things of the Lord? I'm sorry, the things of the world? Well, here he tells them first to pursue righteousness. Timothy, as you go on in the work of ministry, now again, don't make this unique to just the pastor or minister or whatever. This is to us all. But make it your aim to overcome your flesh and be proactive in pursuing biblical rightness. Righteousness, biblical rightness. What is right according to the Scriptures? That you would live a life that reflects Christ. It's the only way that that's ever going to happen. Secondly, pursue godliness. Make it your aim to overcome your flesh and be proactive in your pursuit of God-likeness. That I would live this godly life and I would stand out from the world and the ways of the world. And then pursue faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Make it your aim to overcome your flesh and be proactive in your pursuit of the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is somebody who is filled with the Spirit and that it's that which they produce. Again, I've mentioned it so many times. I've got fruit trees in my backyard. Right now, my lemon tree is filled with the Spirit. How do I know it's filled with the Spirit? Because there's lemons all over the place. There's the less mature tree. That would be the lime tree. The lime tree is just kind of starting to get it, and it's produced a few of the limes. Then there's great immaturity on the other side of my yard. There's the apricot tree and the peach tree. Now, the peach tree was a little bit younger, and the peach tree seems to get it a little bit sooner than the apricot tree does because the peach tree has produced fruit. Now, there's the apricot tree. I'm a little bit concerned. It's been about three, maybe four years, whatever it's been, and still there's no fruit produced. And so, real concerned about that. I'm giving it a little bit more attention. I've pruned it, and I went and I fertilized it because I want to see it produce some fruit. And it's the same thing within the church. You've got those people, such as my lemon tree, that have been there for quite a long time, and they're producing massive amounts of fruit. But what was planted right next to that, that, that lemon tree is the lime tree, and I think the lime tree's been looking over at the lemon tree. And it sees the example of the lemon tree, 
and it sees us as we go out there and pick the fruit and how joyous we are. And so it wants to be part of that as well. So it's been producing to the best of its ability. It's a smaller tree. It's kind of a dwarf or semi-dwarf tree. But again, it's producing fruit. Now the guys on the other side of the yard apparently can't see that far. Because, well, there's the peach tree that, as I said, kind of gets it. Not quite as mature as the apricot tree, but it's doing its best. And that's all that God ever asks, is that we would do it do its best. But then there's the stubborn apricot tree. And unfortunately, it's always the one that doesn't produce, that gets our heart and gets our prayers. Not that I've been praying. Maybe I should. Not that I've been praying for the production of apricots. But I've been giving it a little bit more attention. That's how it needs to be in the body of Christ, is to give those so that we're all producing fruit. And again, who is it that partakes of the fruit produced? Well, I haven't seen my lemon tree eating any lemons. But it's others that come, as I said earlier, and partake of that. And there's joy in that fruit. So, Timothy, be proactive in the fruit of the Spirit so that others may be able to come to your ministry and partake partake of the production of what God is doing in your life and what God is doing through your life. But there's going to be obstacles. So, Timothy, verse 12 Fight the good fight of faith. Don't lose faith in these things. Don't lose faith in God and stop fleeing the things that cause you to stumble. Because it's all you need to do is to let your guard down just one time or just for a little bit, and it seems like the devil will overrun. Have faith that you would continue to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith Lay hold of eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What fight is that? Again, this fleeing verse pursuing. John said in John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, do not love the world. Don't have a passion for the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So fight that good fight so that you would continue to abide throughout the church age and into the age to come. Fight, fight here would be a Greek contest in which the contestants would use leather gloves embedded with lead or iron. It was something that was very bloody, and it was something that was very brutal. You see the, what the, the language that Paul uses so that we know we got to get in there, and this is a real fight. This is something that I really have to give effort over to. Because if I don't, see, just as truly as I've got these leather gloves embedded with letter iron, the enemy does as well, and he's going to knock me out. I've got to get in there, and I've got to give it my effort, and I've got to understand that the Christian life isn't easy. So many people say, come on to the Christian life, and you'll be blessed. Come into the Christian life, and you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, and all of this stuff. I haven't realized that. It's hard. It's supposed to be hard. Why? Because you have to die to yourself. You have to die to, again, you have to be reactive to the things that cause you to stumble, and that's a hard thing. Now, the Lord will fill me with the Holy Spirit for these purposes. I have to ask for that. 
Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As I'm yoked with him in this, he's going to enable me. But I have to put forth the effort. Those who don't put forth the effort, they're going to get knocked out. And in the process of fighting the fight, he says, lay hold of your salvation. Do you do that? Have you lay hold of your salvation? Ever notice how some people, hopefully this doesn't apply to you, but some people who are married aren't really married. They're just kind of two people who are living together. They've kind of just made the determination that we're just going to get through this and when we die, we'll go to heaven and everything will be good. But the thing about it is they're missing out on so many blessings. And you can equate this to Christian life as well. They never lay hold of marriage. They've never given of themselves for the purpose of receiving for the other or or vice versa. And so since they've never lay hold of marriage, they're just going through the actions. The two have not truly become one, and their marriage is not all that it could be. It's not beneficial to them, nor is it beneficial to anybody else. And again, it's the same in the Christian life. This is somebody who is saved, that, and we'll take, use best case scenario, they've truly given their life to Christ, but they haven't let hold of their salvation. There's so many aspects of Christianity that they haven't dove into. There was that day that they got saved, and although maybe they still continue to go to church, but they've just never really entered in. And again, if you don't enter into Christianity, you don't see the beauty of the Lord. But it's as you enter in that you see the beauty, or that's as, you, as you lay hold of your salvation, you see the reality of what God does in a life here on earth. And if we're not laying hold of salvation, then we're just kind of skating through. And if we're just skating through, we're really of no use to God. The battle is raging, and I find my shelter in service. I find my shelter in dedication to the Lord. How do you lay hold of salvation? Well, first of all, verse 11, by fleeing and following. Secondly, unless you, you confess your salvation, you have yet to lay hold of your salvation. You must confess it. Usually a lack of confession comes from a lack of understanding or a lack of security. Confessing my salvation? Well, we did it yesterday. We had a funeral here. I gave a message and I asked, is there anybody here that wants to receive Jesus? You know, I went into a whole lot more detail than this, but to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and somebody got saved. They went on public, a public declaration of what God was doing inside of them. We had a funeral a week before that and two people got saved. And again, there's just this necessity of going on record. Because you're not saved because you raise your hand or walk down and up. That does not save you. The person behind the pulpit does not save you. It's a work that God does in your life. What's the raising of your hand? Really, the raising of your hand is your first act of being a witness, first act of obedience to the Lord. Because if you're standing there and God's telling you to raise your hand, you don't raise your hand, you're starting off in disobedience. And so it's the first opportunity to be a witness that as you raise your hand, you're going on record that God's done a work in my heart. And what are people seeing? They're not seeing you, but they're seeing the miracle that God is doing through His work. And how God continues to move in the hearts of His people in a very real and, and, and practical way. And so I, I've got to understand this, that I've got to go on record. I've got to confess my salvation. Anything else, well... We want understanding and security before we make something public. Jesus says, go public and I'll give you understanding and security. 
And it's all about the necessity of walking in faith. Walking in faith. The Lord's, you, you, you'll tell the Lord, you first. The Lord will say, no, you first. But I'll be with you every step of the way. See, that's called the first step because every other step has got to be like that as well. As God leads, as God directs, we follow through and he walks through with us. There's a lot of things that are going on in the lives that are represented here. And God is telling you, you make the step. You make the step. You seek after me, you pray, you seek me in your word, and you make the best determination you can of what my will is, and then you step out in faith. And as you step out in faith, God's going to direct you. You're not all going to take the right step in that first step, but as long as you're taking a step, God is able to direct. Again, a moored boat or a parked car and a Christian not do anything, they all have the same thing in common. They're not going anywhere. It's got to be the person who's taking that step of faith that God will direct. And so he talks of this good confession. Well, let me go ahead and read the scriptures in verses um, 12 through 14. Fight the good fight of faith, lay whole of eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. So that brings us over to John chapter 18. This is where Christ faced Pontius Pilate, at least what we have here in the scriptures and in John chapter 18 verse 36 it says Jesus answered as he's speaking to Pontius Pilate my kingdom now these are realities concepts that are are just realities that are, are real in the Christian life and real in the gospel my kingdom is not of this world Jesus's kingdom is not of the world he's proclaiming this you're calling me a king and I am but it's not of this world our kingdom is not of this world we're not of this world My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus said, You say rightly, for I am a king. Again, another truth. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice." And so these are foundational truths that the Lord has given to us through his faithful witness to Pontius Pilate. And we have the same opportunity as we gather truths from the word of God and we are vocal with those truths. There's that opportunity for ministry, that opportunity for this great witness that God has called us to. Thirdly, someone who has laid hold of salvation keeps themselves unspotted from the world. Verse 14, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Laying hold of salvation has to do with repenting. There was the initial repentance the day that you were saved, but there's that continual washing in your Christian life. Is there anybody here, you can raise your hand, who didn't sin this past week? Nobody raised their hand. I didn't raise my hand either. I played golf and I tried to kill the guys I played with. (laughs) So we need that continual cleansing. That continual cleansing that comes from the word of God that I would be unspotted from the world. 
Fourthly, someone who has laid hold of their salvation knows who their Lord is. Verse 14, that you keep this command without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He's going to come back according to his calendar. He who is the blessed only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. I like how Apostle Paul, what he does, he kind of goes off on a description. You know, he's just going through these short things here, and then he comes to Jesus Christ, and he kind of gets a little long-winded. But not long-winded in a, a bad way, in a good way, because he just sees the glory. Paul is just aware of the glory. Maybe a little bit more aware than us. I don't think so. Yeah, he saw him on the road to Damascus, but we have the more sure word of God. That just as Paul was sure because he saw him, we're sure because we see him by faith. And as we see him by faith, this is all part of the confession, this good confession that we are able to give. That as Christ worked in my life, Christ can work in the lives of others as well. Christ can work the very same way that he worked in your life. If somebody simply told you about the gospel, as you simply tell somebody else about the gospel, they can have that profound change as well. And so, what are we to do? Well, with every calorie that I consume, that isn't stored, there's energy. There's the resulting energy. I consume calories for the purpose of energy, whatever I'm expanding that, or expanding that energy. In energy upon. With conversion, conversion must result in confession. Because by faith to faith to faith, the just shall live by faith. Paul, Paul, he, he, he set the world on its ear. He's part of that group that the Lord used. But he's also understanding the necessity of the future generations. And he's asking Timothy, you, man of God, He's trying to get his attention so that Timothy Timothy would consider these things. Timothy would know and understand the things that he has consumed, his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which was given to him by his grandmother and his mother. Paul, as he ministered to him, these works of ministry and everything that, that he's been a part of, that even as he has received, that he would freely give as well. Which brings us to our communion meal this picture that we have of what we basically just talked about. That I have this meal that in a few moments I'll be holding in my hand. And as I hold this meal in my hand, it's there, but it doesn't do any good. I mean, if you went home and said, what did you do at church today? Well, Pastor Mike talked for a while we did communion. Oh, you partook in communion? Well, I just got it, but I just held on it. When I left, I threw it in the trash. Well, you didn't partake of communion if that's what you did. There's got to be the consumption. And as there's the consumption, and again, the Lord has given us this tangible thing as a very visible lesson. There's this consumption, but as this goes in, as I've said before, it becomes part of who I am, part of what I believe, because all of these beliefs that I have gathered, that anybody has gathered throughout their lives, it all has been become part of their personality and who they are and the things that they do. Well, this becomes part of my personality, who I am, and the things that I do. And that being the case, yeah, I partook of it. But as it goes in, it's also going to produce, if you will, the same thing that that calorie produced energy, that this is going to produce that which I go out and I exercise my gifting and God is glorified. It's a reminder. 
It's a reminder that Christ died, but it's a reminder that I consumed him through belief. And as I did that, the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of me, and I've got great responsibility to lay hold of this salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, the apostles that we have that penned the scripture, they did this. They considered this. They considered the body. Again, uh, John in 1 John, I saw him, I touched him, I heard him, I lived with him for periods of time, that the reality that Christ had come. And then secondly, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It was that which was forecast in the Old Testament Scripture. Although your sins have made this great blemish, His blood will wash you as white as snow. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. So how often do you do it? As often as the church is to continue to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This is to be a reoccurring event throughout the history of the church. And so... We gather together in this, this church, in this building, for the purpose of this meal. Now, after church, you can still go out to lunch. You're probably still going to be hungry. But the idea is, is that the, this is the essence of what my belief is, that at a certain point in time, Messiah came and entered in. And as Messiah came and entered in, he altered the course of history and humanity, but also his blood, as his blood was spilled upon the cross, now spilled blood speaks of the death, his sacrificial death, he washed our sins away. And as far as you consuming it, the idea is this is personal. This is personal. It's as if he is meeting me once again for the purpose of reminding me. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And so again, we hold those communion elements in our hands, and it's for the purpose of remembering of what God has done. But if you're doing so in an unworthy manner, if you're doing so in an unsafe state or in rebellion to the Lord, it it says here, you will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. It's to say that I believe in these things, but I'm not really receptive of these things even of myself. And so what we do before we partake and come up and serve yourself, we need to consider. We need to consider. Where are you at with the Lord? Where are you at with the Lord? Have you laid hold of that for which God has laid hold of you for? Or are you just kind of skating through? The good thing about God is he says, start over with me and I'll start over with you. And so we always have that opportunity for repentance, a change of direction, and then moving in the right direction. So we're just going to take a minute or so, and I just want you to consider. Consider yourself. Consider your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there anything you need to repent of? If there's any change that needs to be made, that you before the Lord would seek him out and ask him to enable you in that change. Let's take a few minutes.